a Mitch and Jeremy exclusive. Are you ready? On air. Online. You ready to have a good time? On your smart speaker and wherever you stream. The Mitch LaFon and Jeremy White Show. The Mitch LaFon and Jeremy White Show. Available wherever you stream. Catch up on past interviews and episodes on demand now. Subscribe so you don't miss any of it. All right, well, look, let's get right into it. Our next guest is a future Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, going to be inducted later this year with his group Arithmix, the brand new record and deluxe set uh, box set for Ebony McQueen, going to be dropping on May 20th. You can pre-order it now wherever you get your music. Welcome to the show for the first time, the one, the only... Dave Stewart, how you doing? Uh, very well, thank you. Uh, je marche bien. Uh, et vous? <laughs> très, très bien. Ça va très, très bien. Merci. Wow, we're going to go all French we're, today. We're going to go all on the French. Oui. I like that. Uh, let me just ask you real quick. You've been inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame way before the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Is it the same thrill to be inducted into both of them or to be recognized for being a songwriter? Does it sort of go... Yeah, that's what it's kind of what it's all about. Is there a difference between the two? Well, um, personally, um, obviously, and Danny as well, you know, we are songwriters, right. but we were uh, a live act that performed hundreds and hundreds of shows and a very powerful live act. So I think they're two different worlds, you know. What helps is when you're performing a live act and the songs are great. <laughs> so right. it's like a double double whammy then. But uh, no, we're thrilled about both. Um, you know, when we're, we're going to do the actual induction of the Songwriters Hall of Fame on June the 16th in New York because of the pandemic, it kept being delayed. Right. So uh, we're going to play there and then we'll play at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But I think we'll play completely different kind of things. The Songwriters Hall of Fame for me is fascinating because from a very young age, about five, my dad built a record player out of in the workshop. We lived in a tiny house and he had one of those little sheds, you know. Wow. And uh, he made these wooden oak speaker cabinets and he rode away to Grundig in Germany and got speakers and, and he bought every Rogers and Hammerstein musical. So one morning mm. we all woke wow. up with like, blasting you know oklahoma with my dad singing along and me being totally confused as to how where the sound was coming from and <laughs> but it, it what was, is this sorcery <laughs> yeah it was drummed into my head these arrangements you know till i was about 10 that my dad played every morning and sang along with them <clears throat> and i didn't realize how important that was in my development as a songwriter till years later, you know, the beginning of Eurythmics. Now, I always was interested in arrangements as well as the song. And, right. you know, and I think these early things that happen in your childhood, you, you often don't realize till later on, oh, yeah, that's why I like sort of uh, this so much, or that's why I tend to want to have my meals in this certain way right. you know you kind of slowly right. fall into you don't turn into your parents but there's certain things that you have been instilled into you mm -hmm. that um and hopefully you keep the good ones you know <laughs> right right yeah yeah you want to be influenced by the good ones not the shitty ones <laughs> yeah you want the good habits not the bad habits yeah exactly exactly 
It's funny though. A lot of artists I find, I mean, the best ones are usually the ones that wear their influences on their sleeves and and that early childhood. I mean, those are really the biggest impacts on you, especially as an like in the art world. Like those early early exposures to good music. Like I, I feel like those. Well, are the best yeah. Artists. I mean, the opening of my single that came out today, Ebony yeah. McQueen. Yeah. Right. So that is the end track in the movie that's going to be made. You know about my a slice of my teenage life. And it's totally influenced by my dad playing these epic orchestrations. You know, I've got a 60-piece orchestra, and at the back, at the end of the song, there's a marching band, which is very Sunderland, the northeast, all the, the pits, you know, the coal mining pits had sort of uh, brass marching bands and all that. And I put it into a Beatlesque kind of world, which is when I put on the radio for the first time I got interested in music, I was about 13, 14, there's the Beatles blasting out and the kinks and the stones and the small faces. So it takes you on a musical journey, even in that one song, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. And uh, I opened the whole, it's a triple vinyl album in the box set, as well as being online yeah. on May the 20th. Right. It opens with this track called Quaalude Prelude, which <laughs> in America... I'm, I'm sort of taking the mickey out of the classical sort of names, but also that was in England. They weren't called Quaaludes. They were called Mandy's, right? And um, oh, wow. uh, when I was about, when I just started learning the guitar, this kid came around my house and his mum was a doctor. And he said, we were going to go and see a band for the first time, you know, because we were too young, really. Mm -hmm. And he said, um, hey, take one of these and we'll drink this cider and jump up and down and it will be great <laughs> and of course we did i don't remember much apart from ending up like my trousers were all ripped and torn <laughs> and <laughs> everything we tried to climb over a fence and ended up falling in the bushes and everything. Bunch of hooligans just... at a rock show i <laughs> know uh, we never even got to the rock show we oh. got to the <laughs> So the door of, it was the local church, you know, that had a band playing inside called the Solenoids. And wow. <laughs> I, I don't remember much else, but um, we ended up going to see Alfie, the movie, at the Odeon, and it started to sort of wear off a bit. And But mm. it was a confusing night, I'll tell you. Right. Yeah, I can imagine. I wanted to talk about um, recording really quickly because, uh, I mean, you see the big Pro Tools session behind you with, uh, you know, 100 tracks going on. And then... Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, a that's a whole movie score that he's he's actually... <laughs> they can see you operating it. Um, <laughs> but I, I just want to know because, you know, I mean, this day and age, people take it for granted, like, just how much easier it is to make music. I mean, you go back to, like, you know, Be Yourself Tonight and the, that record, for example, I mean, there's so much stuff going on. Like, I how do you... <laughs> what's <See>? up? <laughs> hey, everybody. <laughs> there we go. Oh, look at... Jeez. Oh, wow. Okay, original. home studio tour. I'm going to stop. What's going on? What are we running over there? <laughs> uh, I was just showing you the original... Uh, synthesizer from early Eurythmics records called wow. a Juno. and uh, the Sweet Dreams uh, Juno? Uh, we didn't have a Juno for Sweet Dreams. We had a Roland SHO one and we kind of stole this guy's Kurtzwell that, that left it in our attic. And so it was a mixture of the two and oh. a big old boom on a drum machine that I had to sleep on the floor with my mate of this guy who was building the first drum machine where you could actually see something on a monitor. 
Yeah. And uh, Fairlight? No, it was called uh, Movement Audio Visual, and it only lasted a short period. It was very rare. But uh, we didn't really have anything else. I had a Clark Technic spring reverb. um, I had a sort of... In fact, it was crazy. I had a bell noise reduction little thing underneath a TAC 8 track. Hmm. Uh, For the listeners, this is all sort of maybe technical, but basically... Oh, I'm the gear slut on the show, so we like this stuff. All right, so we had nothing. And so in order to get Annie's voice sound, I would like just to compress it. um, I would just, you know, record it with the noise reduction out and press it in. Oh, interesting. Uh, and stuff, and then the space echo, we used it in a million different ways, a rolling space echo, you know? Right, the box? But, um, yeah, the little uh, green box with a tape going around, and like, yeah, yeah so, uh, uh, but necessity is the mother of invention. Um, Sweet Dreams, the record, actually, not many people know. We wanted this sound. Now, we only had seven tracks on an eight-track to use, and we wanted to sound in the middle, you know, when it goes, hold your head up, keep your head up. Right, and so we ended up playing milk bottles with like sticks with water emptied out to to do wow. the sound that we wanted, you know. So it just goes dun dun dun. Now every time you hear it, you'll hear that. But um, of course, wow. So that's milk bottles. Yeah. <laughs> um, what What's anyway. amazing about the '80s, though, is that you had to come up with these creative uh, processes. You know, you listen to, for example, uh, on Judas Priest, they use kitchen yeah. knives and 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 forks, and they they, they shuck them around to make it uh, sound. Of- yeah. Now you did. Yeah. Now, yeah. I don't know if we're less That's- creative or lazy, but. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, it's funny that because I was just talking the other day about on sisters are doing it for themselves. Right. I uh, I used a lot of the Heartbreakers playing because I was working with Tom Petty. Right. And then I wanted a great big sound to sound like, you know, a massive shaker, like a voodoo kind of shaker. Mm. And so I got a tin, a big tin can that was had, you know, used to have coffee in it, emptied it out, put sort of knives and forks and then <laughs> coffee beans and everything in it till I got it right. And then if you hear the track, it's very loud in the show. It's like... Wow. <laughs> like and that's this. the homemade shaker. Yeah. It's a homemade shaker. And when I was recording Aretha in Detroit, we had this blasting out the speakers mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, George Clinton came running in. He was in another studio and he goes, hey, man, what the fuck's that? <laughs> and it was just like, <laughs> you know, it's great. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. It's true, though. I mean, these days you just go on YouTube and rip a shaker if you want, but the back in the day you had to make one. Yeah, and, well, and so I think we've lost part fun. of the crea- Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I th- you know, I, actually on this on this album, I do a lot of funny things like that. I use kind of like, I suppose, a wrecking crew band in Nashville that I've made lots of albums with. Right. Chad Cromwell, who's a great drummer, he plays for Neil Young and all sorts of people. Mm-hmm. Well, me and him, you know, we're locking about trying to get this sound on um, one of the songs. And we ended up going in his back yard where acorns had fallen down and it opened up, you know. Mm-hmm. So, ah, these. So we grabbed these acorns and I've got a film of us with like uh, drumsticks and the acorns going. <laughs> Wow. And it's all sort of mixed into, uh, yeah. So on the record as well, it's I go through all these uh, 
genres of music because discovering music at 14 years old, I keep slipping down in my chair, <laughs> discovering music um, was mind-blowing. You know, my cousin sent a blues album from Memphis, and I'd never heard that before. And so that was the first thing that blew my mind. So in the album and in the film, I changed the name to Ebony McQueen, made it a voodoo blues queen. Yep. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the reasons I made Deep Blues in 1990, the movie, to pay homage to these Delta Blues artists. But um, but obviously when I realized, wow, this is music, you know, because before that I just wanted to play football for Sunderland, mm. and that's all I did, play football. I switched on the radio, and all of a sudden I was listening to the radio, and it was like the Beatles and the Kinks and the Rolling Stones and the Small Faces, and I was like, whoa, and I just picked up a guitar. So now I was trying to learn everything, like, Blues music, Beatles music, Stones music. Fortunately, later on in life, I got to work with a lot of these people, you know, so I became great friends with George Harrison. Yeah. He was living in my house in LA. Then I wrote songs with Tom Petty, and then I made films with Dylan, and then they all ended up in my back garden, forming the Traveling Wilburys and recording in my back garden. So right. it's very strange, you know, when you're a kid, and these are records, you know, my brother had bought or whatever. And I like learned all these songs. Full circle, right? Yeah, I learned these songs off by heart. And the next minute I'm looking out my window and under the tree strumming acoustic guitars is all of them. Like <laughs> and Roy Orbison, you know, it's crazy. <laughs> you got to pinch of, yourself. When you, were, when you grow up and you're listening to those rock bands or, or sort of the more pop bands like the Beatles and, and the Rolling Stones and stuff, was that the only thing that you were influenced by? Or did you get into the progressive rock with Yes and Genesis and Peter Gabriel? Uh, I never got into any of them until Peter Gabriel came out with the album with Sledgehammer. Right. So uh, I know because I, I was trying to do this thing. I was, um, when first I was learning the guitar and I heard a blues record for the first time, I didn't even know how to play the guitar. So I just went on two strings, like, that's all I was trying to learn. And I was doing that for about a week. And then hearing the stones come on the radio and first i realized oh they're like playing a bit like the blues yeah right, right. so like this well i'm a king bee and i'm going hang on a minute now that sounds like this other blues record and then i started putting them all together but yeah. when i heard mississippi john hurt mississippi john hurt and people like that, they were finger-picking, and that was like a whole weird thing, like one hand's doing one thing and the other hand's doing the other right. thing. It's got that so that, that was interesting to me later. You know, all that stuff. So that's why on the album, um, I wrote a song called Walking on Thin Air, Right, and I'm em emulating those early blues finger picking kind of play. So I basically poured all of my musical influences onto a triple vinyl album, and I didn't give a fuck whether people said, "Oh no, he's wandered from genre uh -huh. to genre." 
yeah, because hello, this is everything that was coming blasting out of the radio. Yeah. It wasn't like radio then was like, oh, oh yeah, that should be indie rock and that should be this and that. It was like BBC, Radio 1. Hi, and here's the Beatles' new single, followed by, and now it's Tom Jones. Right. <laughs> and now it's Dusty Springfield. Oh, and now it's the King singing Waterloo Sunset. You know, It was everything. Waterloo Sunset. Everything. I, but I liked it when we had one genre of music and it was called music. <laughs> exactly you know yeah. and pop music only means popular music right. so yeah. the stones the beatles all of them were just seen like popular music mm-hmm. uh but i you know like everything and probably more in america it's like lit. we don't know where to put our commercials so we have to make genres so mm-hmm. that's why mtv collapsed basically because the advertisers who you know, paying the revenues and all that, they go, well, you can't play sort of Judas Priest followed by Michael Jackson or whatever. We need to know what the demographic is. Right. <laughs> so now we have teen pregnancy or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A teen <laughs> yeah. mom four, you know. Yeah. But it, it's yeah. funny talking about music like that, though. I mean, you know, I work in top 40 hot AC radio and every single song we play is, you know, goes through the auditorium test and the focus groups and all this. But then, you know, you listen to a song from The weekend, or you listen to a, a Lady Gaga song with the big production from Max Martin. And it's like, when you strip yeah. it down to just the piano or the guitar, it's still just four chords and you have to be able to sing that melody. Exactly. But, you know, uh, there's certain people who can construct like the ideal pop song formula using right. the four chords and the melody. Mm-hmm. And you might have six or seven songwriters chipping in with lyrics and somebody's got a hi-hat idea or whatever. Right. Well, when Annie and I made nine albums in a row in eight years, we wrote every single song, the two of us, and each one never longer than 30 minutes. Words, melody, chords and recorded them and uh we never ever thought or we wouldn't have allowed somebody to join in because it would almost break the the bubble you know the code the the world we were in and that's why a lot of them are so uh emotional and because we'd lived together as a couple for four years mm-hmm. decided to live apart and then be a duo so there's a lot of personal stuff in there so when we we had no idea we were going to be successful, but then suddenly we're standing on stage looking at each other with 18,000 people going bonkers, and we're going, oh, geez, they're listening to our story. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, there's, no what, bigger, <laughs> there's no bigger aphrodisiac than that. I mean, come on. What, what, changed, uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> what changed between the tourists and the arrhythmics? Because you were there with Annie, and you had the tourists, and you had a couple of singles that, that, that sort of worked. But was it just different oh, chemistry? Was it different band members? What, did, you, did you just learn to write better songs? What changed? Because it was sort of the same we, core. We, we didn't write any songs in the tourists, Annie and I. Right. We, we, we were just members of a band that the other guy in the band wrote all the songs. It was like kind of his band, really. Right. And so what happened was um, that band broke up in Australia and Annie and I, the whole time we were in that band, when we lived together, we didn't write a song each or together. Not one song in four years. Then when we decided to be rhythmics, we wrote like 150 songs in a row, you know. Mm. How do you keep track of all those songs? <laughs> uh, I can't. Uh, <laughs> people have to play them back. If I go to play a rhythmic song, 
uh, you know, just for fun, like at the Troubadour, I used to do a thing, you know, Dave Student Friends every three or four months for a laugh. Mm. And actually for enjoyment. Now I'd say, oh, let's put this Eurythmic song in it. And then Mike, this uh, great friend of mine, MD, I'd go, how's it go again? <laughs> and he would know, you know, I'd get it straight away. But like, there's so many. I mean, since Eurythmics days, I've obviously written hundreds of other songs, thousand over a thousand, whatever. Doesn't mean to say that that's a great thing. I mean, some people can write two songs and they're just the most brilliant songs ever. And uh, right. uh, But I love writing songs on my own and with other people. So um, I just, I suppose, a bit like a painter or a writer of novels, whatever, get up every day. Yeah, I do a certain ritual of things, interesting things. By about one o'clock, I'm in, you know, a sort of zone and I don't sit down and try and write a song. Mm -hmm. I just go into that zone space. Now that could be in the garden or it could be in this room or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I just blurt out whatever I'm feeling that comes in my mind. Right. Fortunately, usually it's something that has an interesting thing in it, or it might be two or three lines that come out of my mouth or some, odd uh, chord changes or whatever. And we have a labyrinth of these things. And sometimes I'll go, like, for instance, I was in Jamaica and I was uh, writing songs with Shakira years ago. Mm -hmm. And then I might pull it up and go, oh, that was a great song, that, that one we forgot about. In fact, I just, somebody mentioned... They heard her playing one of those songs a week ago, whatever. See, most artists are like this. They have things that they draw on. Right. And they go, I, uh, like just yesterday, actually, I was, um, I've just been doing a duet with Amy Lee from Evanescence. Oh, wow. So, and it's a very unusual thing because I was asked by Adria Petty, Tom Petty's daughter. Because when Tom passed away, we all did, all the friends did a song for a kind of streaming. It was kind of like a celebration of Like Tom, an homage you know? in a way. Like a homage, yeah. So there's going to be one coming about the Everly Brothers and, you know, looking at their work. So she said, do you want to do one of these, Nick? I don't really kind of do Everly Brothers type of songs. I said, well, as long as I can do what I want. <laughs> and she said, yeah. So it, it's the weirdest Everly Brothers cover you'll have ever heard. Right. Uh, Which is kind of cool, it, though, because it, uh, it paints the art in a different way. Exactly, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's quite dark. And, um, and it's got this, well, Amy Lee as well singing on it. And... Mm. Uh, yeah, I won't explain anymore, but it will be, I think it's been streamed sometime. It's like one of those things where it's one long stream of other people doing all their songs. Oh, okay. That'll be cool, though. Yeah. Mm.
Um, Dave Stewart, new album and deluxe box at Ebony McQueen coming out on Friday, May 20th. You can pre-order it now wherever you get your music. Uh, just real quick, uh, I want to talk about production a little bit because we talked about songwriting and everything. How important is the production side to the song? Because you've had some of the greatest sounding <laughs> records through the years from crazy over-the-top cannonball snares to just you and the guitar. And I mean, because I'm a production guy. I love the cannonball snares and uh, the programming and all that stuff. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've probably produced most of the songs that I've written or co-written mm-hmm. all of your rhythmics albums and artists that I've been working with and as you know it can be very varied I've done things that are just orchestra and I just produced Josh Stone's new album and co-wrote all the songs on it Wow! that just came out three weeks ago or something like that mm-hmm. and um, now that is very much like Burt Bacharach style songwriting with strings and so forth mm-hmm. um so i tend to not go in with a production style like some producers okay they bring their style to it and the record's going to be like that right i go in wondering what the artist was trying to achieve with their song or their album or the song that we've written and uh and delve into that world which is fun because you're not repeating yourself mm-hmm. and i will use anything i mean you know from a ukulele to a tin can to old analog synthesizers to in this room here i've got like a full drum kit and uh, all sorts of stuff and right it's it's like i don't know i i can't really compare it to another job <laughs> it's quite <laughs> difficult because usually there's a lot of other stuff going on either with the band or the artist at the same time. Mm-hmm. So especially if you've got a room full of musicians and you're producing it, there's so many things going on. Now, if it's a band, they might have certain things going on within the band, you know, differences or whatever, you know, right. Yeah. Or if there's a solo artist, they might be in tears about something. Or if there's just a load of players that you've brought in, they're all like, hey, you know, talking away and you're in the middle of it all trying to concentrate on what you're doing. So, yeah, it's a funny job. Mm-hmm. It's like steering a ship, you know, but right. everybody on the ship is drunk. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and then you just call in Ole Romo to mix it and then you're good to go. Well, Ule, yeah, I've used Ule quite a lot of the times uh, sitting with me mixing and he's a great he's an amazing programmer um like a programming genius but i've throughout the years i had a guy called ned douglas with me for 20 years and he could kind of read my mind and um yeah uh, yeah i can't explain really in a short interview about my production techniques, but I have done talks about it at, for instance, Blackbird Studio, where they study engineering, and my friend John McBride runs it. Right, the Blackbird Academy. Yeah, I went there. But I, I am considering opening up a sort of something about songwriting, you know, um, in well, a, a similar the- way. A lot of big guys, I mean, geez, everybody from Gordon Ramsay to Samuel L. Jackson, everybody's doing these master classes now. I mean, maybe you could do something yeah. like that. Yeah, I was thinking about that, but they're more like they do these one-off things. 
Mm-hmm. I was thinking about something more sustainable even after I'm gone. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, um, so I've been working on that a little bit, you know. The Dave Stewart video course on production. Yeah. I, I wasn't it. thinking of video courses. I was thinking about physical in person uh, places yeah. uh, physical places and with other teachers you know who um, it's all about like you see you have to get people to understand that saying something no matter how painful it is and putting it into a context it's all about putting content into a context music poetry and put it together is very uh, healing for them and for other people. So right. the work the work is not about like how do you write songs to have hits, which is always bombarding everybody on Instagram and everything. Yeah, my thing is about how do you express yourself so that feeling, that emotion, is out there and you can look at it and reflect on it, and how do you put that into a context where the people listening understand what you are feeling. Wow. That's incredibly profound advice right there. Um, Can I just ask you one thing about songwriting? Because when you got to the MTV era, you know, before that, when I listened to a record, it was whatever was in my head, that was the vision of the song. And then MTV sort of fed us the vision of the song. As a songwriter, was that beneficial or did that annoy you? Because now it's like, oh, it's it's the girls dancing on the car. And it's like, that's not what I wanted. You know, that's, that's not the song. <laughs> yeah. This is not my beautiful house. Um, <laughs> well, the thing is, for Annie and I, we were making little films anyway. Right. So I would like a story. I would write a storyline like the Sweet Dreams video, right. you know, and it's about the cow comes in the boardroom showing the sort of ironic sort of madness of boardrooms and stuff. And then suddenly we're with a computer in a field full of cows. And it's very surreal, you know, based on French surrealist movies. We had made that. We didn't even know about MTV. And somebody said, hey, there's this thing called MTV. Mm -hmm. And we'll send you a film. And we were like, I don't think that. (laughs) I think they'll think we're nuts. But actually... They put it on, and it had this effect across America mm-hmm. that people got into the music, and they all thought the video was weird, and it was. Uh-huh. And uh, so we just then continued on this path of like making little what we call vignettes. Right. We never thought of them as like pop videos. We're just like making this little weird vignette. I mean, the most extreme, if any listener wants to watch it and have, like, nightmares, is um, we actually made an album called Savage, and mm-hmm. the first single from to the record company was called I Love to Listen to Beethoven. And can you imagine how pure label, Annie's not singing on the record at all. I've cut up all this, like, mixture of heavy drum machine and do 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 and all this stuff <laughs> and then the video is annie acting saying i was dreaming like a texan girl and like it is surrealism beyond and there's things in that video when you look carefully you'll see for the first time that are very scary right so i was the one that went in and delivered it to the label and everybody's there you know 
And I, here's the Eurythmics first video because they never got involved. I put it on. It's like total silence. Like, huh? <laughs> like, but it, it became some of the fans, you know, favorite album is Savage. Yeah. Right. Was that just to sort of show your your artistic bent? Because I know record labels get to you and say, hey, you wrote a hit. Like, I used to speak a lot to Doug Feger of The Knack, and he would say, you know, yeah. he'd say, my Sharona's the golden albatross. Look around you. The pool, the car, that's all thanks to my Sharona. However, whenever I went into a record company, they'd say, that's that's great, Doug, that we love the new song, but could you write us another my Sharona? We'd really appreciate mm -hmm. And they, right, well, we never uh, talked to the record label about our songs, and they were never allowed into the studio. We just gave them the finished record wow. because they never they never helped us really, apart from a couple of guys and a very young guy, uh, Jack Stevens, who he was probably the youngest kid there who was going, oh, my God, this is great stuff. Everybody else was they're bonkers, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. and so when Sweet Dreams was such a massive hit, then that was it. We just didn't tell them where we were. We'd go and make it in a, a little tiny youth club on the edge of Paris or, like, <laughs> somewhere. And and then we'd go, here it is. And But it would have on it, here comes the rain again, or would I lie to you? Or, mm -hmm. You know, so they didn't complain. They were kind of shocked that wow they went from this electronic thing to missionary man but what the hell right. <laughs> we're selling billions of albums all over the world so <laughs> they, they can't complain no yeah. and, and by the way i saw the premiere of sweet dreams on i think it was called friday night videos and i was just like what the hell is that <laughs> i remember <laughs> i remember that very very well and of course uh, would i lie to you was one of the greatest songs from the 80s so you know yeah oh, thanks yeah. yeah. Well, um, they're all so different that we couldn't, we refused to be put in a box, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are the best artists, like I said. I mean, geez, you, you kind of get a mixed bag of everything. And yeah. yeah. Musical genre well, music. Well, yeah. Bowie, you know, he kept changing and twisting, and he'd go from like Ziggy Stardust to Young Americans and like <clears throat> ones like a soul record. So, uh, yeah, he was ever changing right till the end. Yeah. Um, well, look, we're running out of time. Dave Stewart, new album, deluxe box set, Ebony McQueen, coming out on May 20th. Pre-order it now, wherever you get your music. Uh, congratulations on being inducted into all these Hall of Fames and all the success <laughs> and coming on our <laughs> yeah, little <I> show. <laughs> no, there's, uh, it's funny because uh, there's, there's other ones that obviously in America you don't know about. So we're already in the UK Hall of Fame and the German one and the this and that. Right. But, you know, in America, they always write, whatever grammy winning blah or mm. uk hall of i mean hall of famer hall of famer yeah, blah. yeah. and uh, and it's it's interesting because um it doesn't matter if you're the beatles or the stones will be grammy winning mick jagger uh, but we're <laughs> yeah. english or we're french you know what i mean yeah 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 i'm, I'm french half the time i'm married to a french lady and uh, i used to live in france for years so Nice. Um, we were je parle avec tous les mecs ici avec vous dans la radio. 
There you go. Uh, don't, no, don't, 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 Available wherever you stream. Catch up on past interviews, bonus content, and episodes on demand now. Visit youtube.com slash Jeremy White Show. Follow Mitch and Jeremy on Twitter. Yeah, they're verified. At Mitch LaFon and at Jeremy White MTL.